The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Outside of the Westminster Village, who is Dominic Cummings? Four. So somewhere, herd immunity became a dirty word. Three. Everybody likes to eat sausages, or most people do, but they don't want to see inside the sausage factory. Two. The NHS as a structure was not fit for purpose. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. We need to ask profound questions of a political class that asks people to choose between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Any system which ends up giving a choice of two people like that to lead has gone extremely badly wrong. So says Dominic Cummings, former advisor to Boris Johnson. Matt Hancock lied repeatedly, Cummings yesterday told a Commons committee, something, of course, the Health Secretary vehemently denies. I'm not a smart person, said Cummings. It's completely crazy. I had the power I had, said the Prime Minister's former consigliere. It's completely crackers that someone like me was in there during this pandemic, just as it was crackers that Boris Johnson was in there too. Alison, what do you make of all this? Well, it's flamethrower stuff, isn't it, co-pilot? I mean, look, let's start with the most important story of the week before we get to the evisceration of the entire government's handling of the pandemic. You may have noticed that in Eurovision Song Contest, not a single mark for Royam Uni from the juries of 39 countries. Null um, point. Null point. You know, the UK's won the Eurovision Song Contest five times and finished runner-up on a record 15 occasions, but... We've been absolutely <laughs> trounced, haven't we? By um, I don't know if you saw him, this chap no one's ever heard of called James Newman, who I described as an average voice emerging from a chassis like an overstuffed leather sofa, <laughs> singing a song called Embers. And I, I did suggest that Crematorium would have been a slightly better title than Embers. But I remember, Halligan, the good old days of Eurovision when we actually used to win. Do you have any, do you have any memories of that? You'll find that there comes a time for making your mind up. <laughs> Hugh rip off Cheryl Baker's skirt to reveal an even shorter skirt underneath because the producers of the act, they kept arguing about whether they're going to wear short skirts or long skirts. So they, they said, let's wear both. That's British ingenuity right there. That's the innovation that leads the world. I'm hoping that's going to be the opening of GB News as well as a bit of kind of like, you know, skirts being tossed off and save, save your kisses for me by Alistair Stewart. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what a week for the BBC, uh, what a week for the government. I mean, as we're recording this, I think Dominic Cummings is into his fourth or possibly fifth hour for pouring buckets of steaming ordure onto the onto onto his, um, you know, his previous comrades in the bunker. I mean... What can you say, Liam? I mean, as you said, I mean, he didn't just throw Matt Hancock under the bus. He threw the entire coach station onto his onto his head. I mean, he said that Hancock should have been fired for about 15 to 20 different things, including lying to everybody on multiple occasions. I said repeatedly he should be fired and so did the cabinet secretary. I mean, how much of this is a surprise to us? I, I think we've always known that the weak link in the chain was Public Health England and the Department of Health, haven't we? I mean, the failure of procurement of PPE. And I suppose what Cummings is highlighting is Hancock's blithe assurances that everybody's getting the treatment in 
the NHS that they deserve when off screen were, you know, the bodies were piling up. What what did you make of him? You, You know him a bit personally, don't you? I do. But just before we come on to that, I just want to slightly backtrack to the Eurovision Song Contest again, because it is, of course, the BBC which organises our entry to the Eurovision Song Contest. Yes. And it does seem to me pretty amazing that the raw material you start with is a country that is the world's global superpower of pop music. (laughs) No country comes close to the UK when it comes to writing. Well, the US, perform- apart from the US. On a per capita basis. Yeah. Of course, it's all the Irish and Celtic and Scottish, a bit of Welsh, Welsh influence in there. Certainly you, is. You, you don't get many pop songs being written in deepest Gloucestershire, don't do you? Don't, don't write at me, it's my favourite county. Um, but it does seem to be a pretty stunning feat of management to be able to come up with a song that even with all the, the post-Brexit geopolitics, because, of course, there's always lots of political sniping in, in the way these countries vote for one another or don't. Do you remember when we were kids, it was always the Greeks and the Cypriots wouldn't vote for each other. That's right, and yes. And there's ongoing French-German collaboration. Right, you can, you can see, it, see it right there. But to come up with a song that failed so dismally, even with all the geopolitical angst going on, I thought was a pretty incredible feat of management. And now, of course, I think the BBC is in deep trouble with this Martin Bashir interview, though the former BBC journalist, though he is still getting a lot of money each week from them, apparently, he's still on full pay. Two grand a week. He denies all wrongdoing. But it is pretty clear that the Commons culture uh, and media and sports select committee is gearing up for a really serious inquiry into what's been happening at the BBC over Martin Bashir's interview 25 years ago of of Princess Diana, and that's probably the least of their worries at this point. But on to the man we must call Dom. I do know him a bit. I met him when he was in his early 20s, before anyone Mm. in the sort of political media class knew him, when I was a correspondent in Moscow, and he turned up in my Brezhnev-era apartment and slept on my floor for (laughs) for a while because we knew various academics in common, and they asked me to give him a perch. He was a very, very bright young man, without question, very intensely analytical, who, with an incredible degree behind him, could have had his pick of the jobs, but decided in that time, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the early 90s, he wanted to come to Russia, where I was based at the time, and see what was going on. But I must say, all personal uh, relationships aside, I don't see much of him these days and haven't for some time. I did think it was pretty astonishing evidence. I wonder if it was so astonishing, he went so big, and this is even before the public inquiry where he will also feature, that many people will find it simply hard to process everything that he said. It's almost as if he's come up with so much information that his detractors, and there will be many because he really is pointing not just a gun, but a whole sort of barrage, a sort of battleship. I don't know if you can park a battleship on someone's lawn rather than a tank, Uh, but an awful lot of people now, when the evidence was given yesterday, throughout today and into the weekend, will be working very, very seriously to discredit him. And I think maybe he deserves that under some headings, but there is a lot of truth, I think, in what he's saying about the dysfunctionality of central government and parts of Whitehall, though, of course, other parts of Whitehall and certain individuals, he was very, very complimentary about them. I think there's this major irony, isn't there, that the BBC and Sky, of course, are now hanging on 
every single one of Dominic Cummings' words, treating it as gospel. And if you cast your mind back, Liam, uh, this is the same man they spent years vilifying when he was leading the the campaign for Brexit. So basically, any, any excuse to bash Boris. And I do wonder about that. I also wonder about the the wider impact in the country. I mean, outside of the Westminster village, who is Dominic Cummings? He's, he's that weird bloke who doesn't dress properly, who drove to County Durham and broke his own travel restrictions during lockdown and then and, and then famously and uh, I suspect this will be the thing he was remembered for which he wouldn't be very pleased about would be the needed to test his eyes and so drove to Barnard Castle so I think there's a lot of that and, and something Liam that, that jumped out at me the other day is that that moment when Dominic Cummings was found out as having broken the rules that was a, a key moment in the pandemic when there was a lot less compliance after that with lockdown regulations. So he's very quick to point the finger at other people killing people, bodies piling up, but he may himself have have been responsible for, you know, some of the bad things that happened. I mean, something that struck me, so he began actually with this very emotive, powerful statement. It was it was reminiscent of the first opening statement at the 9-11 inquiry. Cummings said, senior advisors like me fell disastrously short of the standard the public has a right to expect. When the public needed us most, the government failed. And I'd like to say to all the families of those who died unnecessarily that I'm sorry. It was very powerful stuff. But I, what struck, jumped out at me was saying to all the families of those who died unnecessarily. Now, this is a very, very contentious issue. He's basically saying if we'd locked down earlier and Boris and other people failed to take it seriously, if we'd locked down earlier, lives would have been saved. People wouldn't have died unnecessarily. And something that we've been talking about, Liam, on Planet Normal is the lives that have been lost because of lockdown, not because lockdown was too late, but because lockdown has killed an awful lot of people. And my growing suspicion is that the lockdown toll, the death toll from lockdown may one day outstrip the death toll from COVID. So this week, things that you and I have been burbling on about for weeks, co-pilot, cancer crisis risks replacing the pandemic. That was the Telegraph splash on Monday. More than 300,000 urgent checks missed in the past year. Well, these are, I think, the collateral damage will be the big story of the next year. And I think that Cummings is looking retrospectively, and I agree with you that absolutely we do need to know what went wrong. But should we have stuck with the original pandemic plan? Is he right to say that we should have locked down sooner? Would COVID have ended up killing roughly the same number of people? That's exactly what I was thinking while I was watching him. I was thinking that all the coverage, all the response for, for days, weeks, months after this evidence and any other evidence he gives is going to be about the personal and political, isn't it? It's going to be about the scandal and the gaffes and what it means for Boris and what it means for Hancock and, oh, my God, and the political journalists are going to have an absolute field day. Rather than analysing something, the big question, which this bloke, whatever you think about him, and I agree, there was a lot of self-awareness and, and contrition that he showed. He won't get any credit for it, but he deserves some credit for it. And I'm glad you mentioned it. But 
the really big issue and what Boris needs to consider and what Dominic has thought about a great deal is how do you respond to the next pandemic? And in this case, I really do seriously disagree with my former tenant, if you like, not paying (laughs) any rent, with the bloke that used to sleep in my hallway. And I say that with all respect to him if he manages to listen to this. And the reason I disagree, Alison, is because I don't have the inside government knowledge that he has. I wasn't in the room on these huge nation-defining instances and moments. I wasn't. I was studying data, though, and you were studying data, and we were talking in our own little way to lots of very, very serious people who were on the front line of this. And when he says that the problem is that we didn't lock down soon enough and we should have locked down harder, I don't agree. I don't agree, Dominic Cummings, with that. I think, and I still think, we should have had a great Barrington-style response to this. I think we should have locked down or offered the option to lock down, crucially, to older people and more vulnerable groups and people who uh, had medical conditions and needed to work, we should have made it possible for them not to work. It would have cost a lot less money, not that that is important in this case, but it also I think it would have been better for everybody because the vast majority of people could have kept going. People below 50 who are almost untouched in the main with this disease, we should have given provision for multi-generational families, provided hotel accommodation nearby if needs be. These things could have been done and we should have had age-discriminated lockdown rather than locking down the whole economy. And there was part of Dominic's testimony where he did acknowledge that our position is reasonable. He Mm. said, this isn't an open and shut case. He said, there are good arguments that shutting down the whole economy does kill people. And it does kill people. Of course it kills people. But he says that it's better to have locked down harder and earlier. And I just don't buy that argument. I think his argument, the core of his argument, aside from all the political pyrotechnics and fireworks, which our media, God bless them, will gorge on and serve up endlessly, the fundamental argument that that the public really wants us to grapple with, because it will determine how we respond the next time, I think he's wrong. I think we should have gone for Great Barrington style. That's the sort of thing we would have done under the original plan, under original World Health Organization guidance, until, and if we go back to February and March, the teaching union shut down the schools. Everybody saw those pictures from northern Italy, a place that had special exposure to China, that had particularly bad demographics, had a particularly bad shortage of ventilators, not in the end that ventilators were the important thing. They weren't. We now know that. And I think the government, the political establishment, the media panicked. And once you had lockdown in one country, nobody could justify not locking down hard. So I think Dominic is wrong. Well, I, I agree. You, you've mastered this topic, Halligan. I'm impressed. <laughs> not, not, not at all. I'm just an amateur. You know? I dabble. <laughs> no, I agree. And what I thought was that the way he paints Boris as hapless buffoon who's not taking this pandemic seriously. But what's coming through to me is that Boris is saying, hang on a minute, shutting down the economy is going to be an absolute nightmare. He wasn't wrong about that, was he? And no. I thought actually yesterday I was thinking that Back at the start of the pandemic, I spoke to a hospital consultant and I said, what did you think about the coming year? And he said to me, 
don't get ill. He said, never mind about COVID. He said, you'll be fine with COVID. Just don't get ill with anything else. And how prophetic was that? Because we know now one of our obsessions on planet normal. I think it's lovely, Liam, the way that all of our sort of things that were previously described as misinformation are now suddenly kind of coming into their own. She says with just a hint of self-congratulation. <laughs> Fully justified. We did. So these, I'm going to say your favourite word, nosocomial infections. Oh, Here we go. Um, still don't the, know the nosocomial infections. <laughs> Even the Guardian this week has admitted that the actual people who went into hospital with something else and got COVID in hospital, thousands of people have died because of catching COVID in hospitals. And I think the great running sore underneath all this kind of froth and excitement about Cummings' testimony is that the NHS, not the individuals who work for the NHS, but the NHS as a structure was not fit for purpose. It was broken before the pandemic. You know, we've had some of the most strict lockdowns in the world. And one of the reasons we had to have that was because our health service couldn't cope. Forget Matt Hancock. I mean, he was terrible. I, I mean, he, for me, is, is the pantomime villain of this, you know, going on telly and shedding his crocodile tears. I mean, he should be crying about allegedly lying about what's going on in the health service. Which he denies. Which he denies. And the failure to use the private hospitals to actually divvy up patients between the COVID and the non-COVID patients. And because the NHS became a COVID-only service, that is going to have led to so many unnecessary deaths, I, I think. A couple of other things I wanted to say about Dominic's testimony, because there's obviously quite a lot else going on in the world at the moment. <laughs> He tweeted, well, he's tweeted a great deal, but he put out an image that will become, you know, a, a, a standard stock image of, of British political debate, which is a kind of whiteboard full of squiggles oh God, yes. and algebra. <laughs> uh, and, and this was the government's anti-COVID plan, as if to say, look, there was lots of confused thinking, yada, yada, yada. And in some ways, Alison, what I thought when I saw that was everybody likes to eat sausages, or most people do, but they don't want to see inside the sausage factory, you know. This mm -hmm. is what government is like. This is what, frankly, sometimes journalism is like. Behind the scenes, it can be messy, it can be a contact sport, it's difficult. You watch what goes on backstage while Swan Lake is going on on the stage, right? So I'm not saying the government was Swan Lake, but the point I'm making is it's absolute carnage. You've got some of the most raw, visceral human behavior happening amidst the tiaras uh, and, and, and the <laughs> tightly bound ribbons. Yes. And then, of course, on stage, it's the pinnacle of human physical beauty. And so you don't want to show inside the doors of the sausage factory. And I thought that was a little bit indulgent of him. And I thought some of the other testimony with the extremely strong language that he knows will get him all over the world's press for whatever reason. Uh, and that detracts from the fact that he does have an awful lot of very detailed knowledge of what happened. He does have some very interesting ideas and insights in what we need to do, even though I think he's broadly wrong. It doesn't mean there's no value in what he's got to say. On the contrary... Mm. Uh, and I think he is just going to be, if not dismissed or, or politically eviscerated by his enemies now, he will be discredited as being a freak. And I think that's wrong. I think he's done his own mind, experience and intellect, if I may say so, a disservice by going in so hard in terms of how he's presented his analysis. So it's become all about political knockabout rather than actually offering himself up, showing the detailed and substance of what he's learnt, you know, 
over quite a few years now at the pinnacle of political power in this country. Talk about knockabout. I mean, he even had he even had a go at Dylan the dog and Carrie, didn't he? And Gordon Rayner, who's one of our top writers, is already um, picking one of the dates when I'm not sure if it was Dylan the dog who weed on something or... <laughs> carry through a fit or something i think the exact date when the dog peed on um i don't know if it was matt hancock or good good luck to dylan if he does that he is welsh i think shows good taste actually if he's done that i think liam we can both agree we're looking forward to the day when dylan the dog gives evidence to the public inquiry into the coronavirus pandemic one other thing i did want to mention is what's happened in recent days the government now is so petrified of how it responds to this indian variant that it's issuing regional lockdown orders but it's doing so by stealth by saying it quietly hoping no one hears but hoping that everyone <laughs> complies i mean tuesday was a really strange day the government issues some advice to areas of bolton blackburn bedford that there should be uh, regional uh, restrictions put in place and then when there was a huge backlash from local MPs, local community leaders, you know, some conservatives as well, it wasn't a party political thing, the government claimed that some of the advice was a mistake and so on. All this comes down to, again, the confidence you have in your analysis. And for me, the analysis shows that in Bolton even, where there are more instances of the Indian variants, uh, so-called, Almost all of the cases are among people below 30. Why? Because the vaccines are working. Mm. Because the vast majority of people, even in Bolton, where unfortunately there is some vaccine hesitancy, partly linked to religious reasons and ethnicity. But again, that's improving. A lot of religious leaders are encouraging the vaccination to be taken up. But the vast majority of people above 30 are vaccinated. So they're not getting this new variant. It's people under 30, and the vast majority of those, of course, are in no danger whatsoever. So the government should be relying on the vaccine that it told us would be the key to our freedom rather than issuing panicky uh, orders that are non-orders because it can't stand by them. It doesn't want to provoke more regional backlash like they had in Manchester, where Andy Burnham basically dismantled the government single-handedly over a number of days, didn't he? I think that there's, an, there's a, a truth that's hard to speak here, Liam. It's because they're treading on eggshells because all of the towns you mentioned, Blackburn, Bedford, Hounslow, Leicester, Bolton, these are all high Asian areas. And there's I think there's incredible trepidation about creating ghettos, creating social unease. So I think one reason that they're issuing this guidance in secret is because they don't really want to point the finger. And I can, you can kind of understand that. It's really interesting what you've said. I asked George again this week, this is our NHS England insider who's given us such fascinating detail for Planet Normal listeners. And we should say, Alison, as we always do, George is our senior source within NHS England. She or he we don't disclose, has full access to the internal data. We're very confident of the authenticity of Georgia's statistics, but we can't verify them independently because, by definition, they're not yet published. So George has given us a bit of a demographic breakdown, which is something you just mentioned. And George says... There's no denying that Bolton has seen an increase in COVID patients over the last two weeks, but that number fell again yesterday for the first time. Now, the age breakdown is interesting. At the beginning of May, when the number of inpatients was still small, that's an average of 10 inpatients a day, the majority of those were over 65. 
Since the 19th of May, just really in the last week when the increase has happened, it has been the younger age group causing that, mostly 35 to 44-year-olds. So when Matt Hancock says it's people refusing the vaccine who are being admitted, George says, I'm not convinced that's true. George shares Dominic Cummings' uh, disbelief in, um, in Matt Hancock, clearly. It's more likely, George continues, those who just hadn't had the vaccine yet, which is what you said, Liam. Anyone being admitted in the last week probably caught COVID sometime during the first week of May when we hardly knew anything about the Indian variant. Bolton currently has the highest number of COVID inpatients, a total of 41, and that's just 4% of their beds, Liam. And this is really interesting. The rest of the so-called Indian variant hotspots are not currently seeing any major upturn in hospital admissions. Blackburn has 15 COVID inpatients, that's only 2% occupancy. Bedford has 13 patients, that's only 1% occupancy. Hounslow and Hillingdon has a mere 13 COVID patients. And Leicester, the much maligned Leicester, has nine. Now, England as a whole has just 741 COVID inpatients. I've said this before, Liam, it's out of about 110,000 beds. So that's just 1% of beds. And I think this is really worth saying. George concludes that the really interesting point is that the Indian variant doesn't seem to be spreading outside the current hotspot areas. The daily interactive map on the government's own dashboard is turning more and more yellow. The hotspots are clearly visible, but not expanding, despite despite us being told that the Indian variant is more transmissible than the Kent variant, the latter definitely spread more quickly. So I think that's very, very valuable insight there from George. And it strikes me, Alison, we've been told by countless talking heads on the TV news, of course, that there was no chance of us opening up properly and fully on the 21st of June. It seems that tune has now changed. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Now, last week, we interviewed Laura Dodsworth, who wrote the book State of Fear, an investigation into the tactics used by SAGE, and in particular the so-called behavioural scientists on that committee, to frighten the public during this COVID pandemic. After featuring on Planet Normal and in The Telegraph more broadly, Laura's book has sold out. Let's hope the publisher's getting busy printing some more. And many congratulations to her. Alison, tell us about our latest Planet Normal stowaway. Well, Liam, we know that the JCVI, that's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, has authorised the COVID vaccines. I had my second dose yesterday afternoon, and that's been done under temporary emergency guidelines. I understand that the JCVI are now debating 
whether to roll out the vaccine programme to secondary schools and even junior school children. I have some concerns about that co-pilot. So I thought this week it would be really great to get someone aboard the rocket who understands all the medical and ethical issues around giving the COVID jab to kids. Now, Dr. Ros Jones is a retired consultant paediatrician with a special interest in neonatal intensive care and paediatric HIV. Since retiring from the NHS, Ros has undertaken several tours teaching safe obstetric courses in Africa. She's just a really good person, basically. She came out of retirement to assist the Us For Them parents group, which campaigns for children's needs not to be forgotten during lockdown. And and Ros, you may have seen Liam, has coordinated a couple of really powerful open letters which have shifted the debate around COVID and children. She's also a leading spokesman for HEART, the health advisory and recovery team, which, like us, is trying to broaden the debate and acknowledge the collateral damage around lockdown, which we've been hearing so much about. This will make you laugh, Liam. Ros caused a bit of a stir when she appeared on This Morning and said, we're all going to die sometime. Apparently that came as a huge shock to ITV viewers. So (laughs) she's a great plain speaking lady. I began by asking Ros Jones what she thinks about politicians and scientists who act as if vaccinating kids is just the logical next step. I feel absolutely horrified, I have to say. I think the idea that we're even talking about this when there is so little knowledge yet of the vaccine. We have lots of knowledge of COVID and the big blessing, I think, which was obvious very early on, is that it hardly impacts on children at all. We knew from Wuhan, I think they had let no under 10 child die in in the all at that first data coming out. And by the time it got to Italy, it was very obvious a disease of the elderly. Last March, I got an email from the GMC saying, would I sign up again? And you know, go and help out. And obviously I signed up and I had an online interview and I spoke to my local pediatricians who I'd been working with, but they didn't need me because they were not busy. They were lending all their staff to the adult wards to help out. But the children's wards, they they were actually, un, they were eerily quiet. So a few months ago, the rhetoric was all about vaccinating the vulnerable and the over 65s. Why do you think the narrative suddenly changed to everyone has to be vaccinated? I think that's a very very difficult question. I I would love to know the answer. I mean, Kate Bingham, who was head of the task force, she was very clear last October, it was a vaccine for adults. And it wasn't even all adults, it was over over 50s. And all the steps of the roadmap were um, around that. You know, schools could go back once the over 70s had been vaccinated, more stuff could open up once the over 50s. I think they, you know, it has been very, very efficiently run out. And I, I think they've got further than they'd expected. Um, I don't know. I, I just don't know. And in terms of going to children, they've started talking, obviously, about herd immunity. What do you think members of SAGE think would be the benefits of vaccinating children? And, and do you suspect that children could have worse side effects than adults? First one, I don't know why they want to vaccinate children. I think they've become completely fixated on counting cases rather than hospital admissions and deaths. Because after all, that's what matters. It's whether you get ill with this that matters, not how many PCR tests we've got. You know, they keep worrying about, oh, there might be a third, even bigger wave once we unlock. But the vaccine rolled out to that top nine categories was equivalent to 99% of the deaths in the first wave. You know, the people who died all fell 
in those nine categories. So if we have another surge, it'll be a surge of cases. It won't be a surge of illness. And that's not the same thing. So I don't know why they want to do it. So then you have to look at herd immunity. And then they start saying, oh, you know, only last month I heard Adam Finn, who's the professor of paediatrics at Bristol, who's been involved in the children's trial. And he's on the committee, the JCVI vaccination committee. Um, and he was saying, oh, we need to roll it out. As soon as we finish with adults, we need to go on to children because otherwise there'll always be this upward transmission pressure from school kids to the adults. So that, I think that's why they want to do it. But I don't think it's necessary. And I think there are various things that we could argue there's, there's all the worry about variants. And the thing about variants is that they're a normal phenomenon of viruses. They're changing all the time, as you well know, and they mutate in different directions. If we actually have quite a number of people who are not vaccinated, well, then they will still get variants and it'll circulate around and it'll give coronaviruses in schools will give children plenty of, of exposure, which they can help keep the rest of us topped up with. It could be quite helpful. Yes, there's this business about upward transmission from children. The, the, the evidence for that is very low, isn't it? All the studies really have shown that transmission within schools is very small, that, that school outbreaks have simply re reflected what's going on in the community. So I think you can see that transmission from adults to children, adult to adult within school is obviously the commonest. The next commonest would be an adult to a child. The least common would be a child to an adult. And if you look in household contacts, the vast majority of household infections are where an adult has brought it into the house from somewhere and then passed it to the children sometimes. But that's far commoner than the other way around. You mentioned peer pressure, but, you know, there was something from the one of the teachers unions yet again about the benefits of peer pressure because you know we'll have really good uptake because we'll persuade them all i was criticized a while back when i wrote i was pleased that my son and his university friends had had covid and made a, a very swift recovery i mean they said it was sort of less bad than most hangovers they'd ever had Rose. um and if you look at the history of pandemics societies have always wanted the young and healthy to get a virus so herd immunity is reached faster and so that the infants will have protection for when they're older. What's different about COVID? Why don't we want young children to get it? I, I have no idea, Alison. I mean, I think we've got back into the argument about herd immunity, haven't we, with Dominic Cummings is sounding off. Everybody, you know, Pretty Patel yesterday was saying, oh, we never said we were going for herd immunity. But just before she said it, the television replayed the clip from the press conference, which we remembered in implicitly Patrick Vallance saying that we want the elderly because we were in that over 70s category. So we were quite happy. We thought we're going to stay indoors for 12 weeks. I, I mean, that sounds an awful hell of a long time, but still. But the plan originally, I thought, was that the youngsters were going to stay in for maybe three weeks or six at the most, really, so that they could be absolutely sure they'd squash this proverbial sombrero and not let the NHS be overwhelmed. And I think what changed was that Boris got ill. And I think that understandably spooked him. You know, if you have a sort of near-death experience, it may cloud your judgment a bit. Um, and so somewhere herd immunity became a dirty word. Some of the adverts, Liam, Liam mentioned an advert last week, which has said, COVID doesn't discriminate by age, which of course, as we as we know, is, is just a complete lie. So I've just had my second jab this week. When you're in a, 
slightly older age group or in an older age group, the, the, the risk you run, it's worth taking a small risk from getting the vaccine uh, to avoiding a bigger risk, which would be brought by getting COVID. That is simply not the case for children and young people, is it? No, and I think that's been the whole problem. All that the government will keep reiterating is it's safe, the vaccine's safe, the vaccine's safe. It's not a very honest answer. What they should be saying is, you know, we've done some trials. We we think it's effective. Well, it certainly does look as if it's effective. But and we know a bit about short term safety. We know loads about COVID now because that's been around for 15 months. But in terms of long term safety, we do not have the data. And so it's not true to keep saying we know it's fine. What we're saying is you've got to balance always when you have a, all drugs have side effects. When you have a patient in front of you, you think, what's the severity of the disease? And what are the side effects of the drug I might give them? And you weigh up with the patient. You know, you would never give something that was going to cause them more harm than the disease itself. Now, clearly with COVID, it absolutely discriminates by age. The average age of death from COVID is higher than the average age of all cause deaths. And all countries have shown that. Um, So if you're 70 plus or 50 plus, you know, you're looking at your risk of COVID and then you're looking at the known short-term side effects from the vaccine and the unknown long-term side effects, which may or may not come to pass. So you're just saying, okay, on balance, I've got a significant risk from COVID. My life's on hold because I'm worried about getting it. And I've got a lot to gain from the vaccine. So the small risks are offset by large gains. The problem when you come, the younger you go down the age group, the less the potential gains are. Because if you've not got serious disease, then you've got nothing to gain. And you get to the point where in children, there really is very virtually nothing to gain from having. You're talking about healthy children having one in two and a half million death rate. So if you... Is that what it is? Yeah, Yeah. it is. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And if you then thought, well, okay, we get a 90% effective vaccine then you can make that go to one in 20 million. But to do that, you know, you're vaccinating two and a half million to to stop one of them dying. Now, then you used to have to seriously start looking at side effects. Um, we know, I mean, I put it, for example, the AstraZeneca, when that was rolled out at Christmas, um, you know, it, obviously from the initial trials, it was thought it was going to be safe, but there were only 11,000 people in the vaccine arm of the trial. And that's good for finding common side effects. When you get those leaflets in a drug box, you know, they're they're graded as sort of very common is maybe one in 10 people get it. And it's common if it's up to one in 100. They could pick up uncommon, which would be up to 1,000. But they're not going to pick up rare, which is up to one in 10,000, let alone very rare, which is up to one in 100,000. Now, that doesn't matter if the very rare was also very mild. But if the very rare is that you've had a thrombotic stroke, then it's rather different. And what happened was that obviously is exactly what happened. Which did seem to be happening, certainly anecdotally, and some other countries got worried that it did seem to be happening, particularly in younger people. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that's right. Sorry, I think we should make it crystal clear that you are in favour of vaccinating children against mo- you know most illnesses that affect them but you're not a, you're not an anti-vaxxer no you're not an anti-vaxxer in any way no 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 I mean I spent my entire career encouraging parents to have 
their children vaccinated. I set up a special clinic for measles vaccine for children with egg allergy who were worried about having it. I mean, that's all changed now because it's not grown on egg, but at one time it was, and there was a worry. So we set up a special clinic where we had adrenaline to hand and, you know, so yeah, absolutely. Ross, you wrote a very powerful open letter to the MHRA, that's the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, which was signed by many professors and public health officials. And you talked in the letter about grave concerns regarding all proposals to administer COVID-19 vaccines to children and of recently leaked government documents which suggested that a COVID-19 vaccine rollout in children over 12 years old is already planned for September 2021 and the possibility of children as young as five years old being vaccinated in the summer in a worst case scenario. Has, has that letter had any effect, do you think? Well, not really. I've had an acknowledgement from the MHRA that they've received it, but I've heard nothing since. I have had a reply from Chris Whitty because I sent a copy to the CMO and, in fact, to Patrick Balance as well. Um, And the copy from them was said that it's SAGE have nothing to do with it at all. It's up to the JCVI. So I've obviously also sent to the JCVI and they haven't replied. Um, I, I am extremely worried about it, Alison. I think one of the things which makes me very concerned. I think we may have had an effect. I think there's been a little bit of talk. And funnily enough, the day the Telegraph gave our letter some coverage, I was interested that the two main um, investigators in the AstraZeneca children's trial, Andrew Pollard, Professor Pollard and Professor Adam Finn, both were appearing saying it would be very unethical to vaccinate children while there were adults at risk in other countries in the world and we should be sharing our vaccine there. You've written very well about past tragedies which occurred when vaccines were rushed to the market. The swine flu vaccine pandemic was rolled out following the pandemic of 2010, resulted in a thousand cases of narcolepsy, a devastating brain injury in children and teenagers before it was actually withdrawn. I mean, do you think COVID vaccines potentially pose that kind of danger to children? And and, and how does it compare with flu, which we actually know kills a certain number of children every year? Um, Yeah, I think the vaccine potentially does. I mean, when we look at actual deaths we've seen already in the American VAER's website, obviously we've, you know, when the, I mean, take it this way, when the children's trial for AstraZeneca was started in Oxford. I wrote to them then in February because I was very worried why they were starting a trial in children without waiting for the long-term safety data for the adults because that's normally what you'd do. You'd get all the long-term data in from the adults and then you'd start your children's trial Um, unless you had a devastating illness for children and you really felt they were under an emergency, which clearly children are not. So I couldn't understand that, but it was only about a couple of months after that that, of course, all the reports started coming in about these thrombotic complications. And then we landed up with the AstraZeneca being withdrawn for use in under 30s here. Now they've actually moved it to under 40s. Yes. As a paediatrician, do you think the needs and rights of children have been ignored in the past year? I think they've been pretty overlooked, I have to say. Um, I think we've realised that. And over time, we keep talking about it now. I mean, ministers will keep saying, oh, you know, we understand the mental health problems, the educational losses. They're all for putting extra money into catch-up mental health programmes and catch-up education programmes, but they still won't let schools go back to normal. So, you know, introducing masks in schools in March was a very obvious example of, again, 
something to do with fear because all through September, October, November, when cases were rising and nobody was vaccinated, masks weren't necessary. Suddenly in March, when cases and death rates and hospitalizations were coming beautifully down, they were back to what they'd been the previous September. But also all the vulnerable, seriously vulnerable have been vaccinated and half of the slightly less seriously vulnerable have been vaccinated. It it just didn't make sense. So, I, I, yeah, I, I think it, I, I don't think they've adequately considered and I think they should have got rid of those very quickly. And I think the other thing's apparent, which is the government have slightly abrogated responsibility. So they'll have said when they got a lot of pushback from us for them about the masks, what they suddenly did was said, oh, but it's not mandatory. But then when you look at the guidance which comes, it says that a school is obliged to follow the guidance. So it's not mandatory for the government to say it's guidance, but it is mandatory to the school to follow guidance. It, it just, it, it's, it's, it's like Animal Farm. It's all doublespeak. It's <laughs> quite Orwellian. <laughs> it is. It is Orwellian. You, you were instrumental in putting together a, a first do no harm letter, a very powerful letter to the Prime Minister from 500 medics and scientists. And it, it said that official data was exaggerating the risks posed by COVID-19 and the government's approach to the pandemic had become disproportionate and was causing more harm than good. We do seem now, Ros, to be in a phase where it's becoming possible to discuss and reveal the more harm than good. Do you do you feel that? I do. I think, as I said earlier on, we, we, we're covering the fact that there's been huge mental health impact. I think people do realise that. I think there's more coverage of, you know, all the cancer waiting times and so on. I think it hasn't been covered that right back from last May, I think as the obvious peak of of hospitalizations and deaths went up and came down again, it never got back to normal. And if you look at excess deaths as opposed to COVID deaths, all cause excess deaths, there have remained a every week excess deaths at home from non-COVID diagnoses. And that's worrying. And nobody's really looking into that as far as I know. Now, I know that you and your husband, Jeff, are, are planet normal devotees. Uh, tell us, tell the listeners what you did the other day, because you said you were feeling bored. This really, Liam's going to love this. Oh, well, yeah, we, 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 it was a raining day. We knew you we usually go out for long walks, but it was chucking it down. So we decided to see if we could remember all your guests. So <laughs> we, got, we got a sheet of paper and we both wrote down everybody we could think of. We got quite a lot the same, but we'd also got some I'd remembered and some he'd remembered. Uh, and they would, you know, added them all together. We got about Oh, 40 out of 50, I think. And we then looked on the podcast to find the remainder because we, we knew we hadn't got them all. So it was driving us bonkers. We kept thinking, there must be somebody else. And then, of course, he looked at this and he said, oh, of course, yes. Oh, I remember that one, yes. But you've had such a fantastic range of, of guests and it's been a pleasure to listen to it, I have to say. Well, Ross, now that now that you've been a wonderful guest as well, I think you can you know you can add, you can add your own name to the Planet Normal quiz, and I think you and Jeff sound like you definitely deserve a Planet Normal mug. Oh well, thank you, Alison. It's been a, a pleasure, absolute pleasure. Well, what a courageous, compelling, measured, and eye-opening interview, Alison, from somebody really supremely qualified to talk about her subject.
Isn't she lovely, Liam? I think you can tell from Roz's voice. She's a grandmother of six. She's kind. She's a good person. She's done a vast amount to promote childhood vaccination. She's not some loony anti-vaxxer. And I think we can't say this too often, Liam. We are pro-vaccination. I personally have wrote about it in my column this week. I feel so grateful that Kate Bingham, the Vaccine Task Force, all those amazing scientists have turned around these new vaccines vaccines so quickly and they've offered us tremendous protection. They've driven down the death rate and the infection. It's been a miracle, really, and we should all be immensely proud of that. Just talking, speaking as a mother, I get concerned. I've heard Jeremy Hunt for the Conservatives. I've heard Jonathan Ashworth, who's the shadow, a Labour shadow health secretary, talking about vaccinating children as though this is some kind of done deal. And if you listen to Roz Jones explaining that the risk-benefit analysis for an older person, it's it's a no-brainer for someone who's in their 70s or 80s to have the vaccine because they're far more risk from COVID than they are than from any tiny risk from the vaccine. When you get lower down the age group, as Professor Chris Whitty has admitted, it's a very different picture for younger people who are at almost no risk from COVID, but who might, who might just have a small risk if they took the vaccine. And as Ros mentioned, the trials that have been done so far for children, they may have thrown up the common side effects, but not the rarer side effects, which will come from much more extensive trials. So I'm not saying never have the vaccine for children. What I'm saying is we need more time to assess if there is a risk. And, and, uh, and you know, uh, we heard about during the swine flu pandemic, um, much smaller scale than what we've just lived through, but that they were um, giving children this pandemic vaccine, which turned out to have devastating consequences for a very tiny number of children, Liam. But when I read about those children hundred of children or so in the United Kingdom who developed narcolepsy, devastating brain injury, that could be your child, that could be my child, it could be anybody's child. So we mustn't enter into this lightly. That's all I'm saying is let's pause. And I'm quite hopeful that with us raising these issues with Roz and other people at heart and us for them raising these issues, that the scientists on the JCVI will consider it very carefully. And I have to say, just to finish, that in the Commons this week, Nadim Zahawi, very impressive uh, vaccine czar, when he was asked about when they were going to start vaccinating children, he said not until the government was totally convinced that it was safe. And that's what I like to hear. I want it to be safe before we start. Now on to our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful messages that you send each week to Liam and I at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you. Had a particularly marvellous selection this week, actually. Here's one from Irene. I listened to today's podcast and it was heartbreaking. You spoke of unintended consequences of remote GP care, and we are seeing that firsthand where I work in oncology. In PET CT imaging, we deal mainly with staging of cancers and response to treatments. Before the pandemic, we'd get patients with newly diagnosed cancers and we'd scan to see how far the cancer had spread. Most were in the early stages. 
we're now getting an increasing number of patients who were unable to access GP care and are now presenting with advanced cancers, some with moles that have been prescribed steroid creams with no face-to-face consultation, and they've turned out to be melanomas. We also have people whose treatment was stopped and we're re-scanning them before they resume treatments and their cancer has spread. This means much more aggressive treatment with more side effects. My dad actually had all his radiotherapy and his hormone therapy is still continuing without a break. So it was possible to continue routine care. I wish there was something we could do to get medicine back to where it should be. There must be others in the NHS who feel that primary care should be exactly that. The gatekeepers, the primary point at which care is given. It costs less to prevent disease than to treat advanced illness. If there is anyone we can lobby, letters we can sign, please let me know and I'll be more than happy to do my bit. Unfortunately, frontline workers like me are afraid to speak out and understandably so. Thanks to you and Liam for speaking out for the rest of us. That's a wonderful email. And this is from Tony, not his real name. Your guest, Laura Dodsworth's book, A State of Fear, should be required reading as she exposes the incredible lengths the government has gone to and is still going to, to keep the British public compliant and under house arrest. I've been suspicious of the government's messaging from early on. To see Laura back up these fears with source material and interviews was a a real eye-opener. In her book, she interviewed anonymous members of SPY-B, that's the committee within SAGE of behavioural scientists, about their roles in the construction of messaging designed to drive fear into the minds of the British people. This made my skin crawl, and I was reminded of colleagues I work with. I'm in the final stages of a PhD and have been able to observe academics, in quotes, in the wild, end quotes, for almost three years now. The number one thing they're always thinking of is how to publish or market their work. COVID presented a unique opportunity for a select group of academics on SPIB to have their work play out on a scale unimaginable to most other researchers. Their position seemed justified only by helping to justify lockdown. Morality went out of the window as this once-in-a-lifetime scenario allowed their work to finally count for something. Ditto the other members of SAGE. I couldn't help but think of those anonymous academics and their psychological techniques as being like children playing with matches, totally unaware of the dangers they could cause. Keep fighting the good fight. Tony. Well said. Really good email. Listeners have been very exercised, co-pilot Halligan, about some of the particularly stupid guidance that seems to be ongoing in defiance of all common sense. People particularly upset this week about the new guidance on choirs from the culture department because they were all getting ready to start rehearsing again after more than a year's absence um, on um, Monday the 17th. And suddenly, Liam, it was said that only six people could sing in the same space together. Caroline was outraged. Where did they get the number six from? Six is not a choir. It's a very small vocal ensemble. Does no one in the Department of Culture sing in a choir? Why may football supporters gather in their thousands on the terraces and sing their hearts out? But my choir of 22 singers may not rehearse socially distanced in a church that can seat 450. Why is it now permissible for amateur brass bands, such a popular activity in the current northern 
COVID hotspot to spread their aerosols, while my choir in Tunbridge Wells, 6.7 cases per 100,000 over the last seven days and falling, must wait at least another five weeks? Very good question, Caroline. And just to add, Liam, here's a lovely one from Anne talking about the younger age group. It's not just choirs who are affected, says Anne. The weekly bumps and babies group that I run also cannot sing. So each week we end by speaking nursery rhymes to the babies. It's bonkers. Why can 16 socially distanced women talk together for two hours but not sing? The other week it was row, row, row your boat. It turns out to be impossible to chant this and my heart leapt as those (laughs) gentle women's voices sang the words softly. The sounds lifting out of the chanting, a little bit of freedom. Thanks for that, Anne. Oh, that's wonderful. And here's a review on Apple Podcasts from Ziggy. Planet Normal, fantastic every week. Can we arrange a Planet Normal knees up this summer? Preferably in Devon. I'd be happy to organise it. And this is another review from Biz. Alison and Liam bring balance, analysis and intelligence. That's me. To the (laughs) usual fear-based media propaganda. Very much needed at the moment. Thank you. Ignore the hate and keep going. Well, thanks to you, Biz. We do get a lot of abuse online, I must say. And it's good to know there are lots of you out there who do appreciate Planet Normal. And if you do like our podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast because it helps others to find us and for the Planet Normal family to grow. Alison, the last one from you. Two tiny ones, Liam. We did ask people what the next variant would be after the Indian variant. (laughs) And uh, Linda says, next COVID variant, the Falklands, of course. Keep going. And Chaz says, dear co-pilots and rocketeers, can I suggest that the next COVID variant will be the International Space Station variant? (laughs) We will be informed by the scaremongers that this will only be able to be treated by wearing a full space suit with mask, of course, with its own oxygen supply and being confined to a zero gravity environment. As experienced astronauts, this should not be a problem for you and Halligan, you will thankfully be able to continue with your excellent podcast unaffected. Thanks so much, Chaz. I heard International Space Station, Alison. I thought of Virgil because, yes, Alison Pearson <laughs> did have a crush on a small puppet, a Thunderbird character. That's how weird she was. Scott, not, not oh, Scott. Was Scott. I was in oh, Chuck Virgil. It was Scott. And then he went back to I Scott. Know, I know. It was, it was always Scott. The moment that I realised I was going to be able to marry him, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a harrowing, harrowing letdown, Halligan. I've never found a man who matched up to Scott and his wires coming out of his beautiful head. That you would no doubt control. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, uh, some psychoanalysis on Alison Pearson's review <laughs> of men there, our flying refuge of reason views, an email of the week, Alison, it's your call. <gasps> oh, no, Halligan, you choose, no, I no, can't. Who, what call, did you think? It's your call. Oh, goodness. Well, I thought that um, Irene, who's working in the oncology unit and who's telling us how, how many late stage cancers she's seeing, I thought she was very brave and we really appreciate people who working in the front line who fill us in so irene planet normal mug heading its way towards you just email us your postal address irene and that precious mug will be winging its way to you alison and i will be responding as normal to your comments on the telegraph website on thursday morning the day this podcast is released between 11 and 12 and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal 
and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Theodora Leludis. Stay safe, stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.